Hello, everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Gerald Auger join us. Gerald's been in the cybersecurity field since 2006. He's a real veteran. He has multiple degrees, holds a PhD in cyber operations. He's the chief content creator at Simply Cyber and the managing partner at Coastal Information Security Group. He's literally written the book on cybersecurity and building your career. The title is Cybersecurity Career Master Plan. It's a step-by-step -step guide for anyone who considers cybersecurity as a potential career field. Thank you so much, Gerald, for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. Great to have you. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you and to engage with your audience. Yeah, uh, thank. Oh, they'll they'll be uh, very very interested in a lot of things that you have to say because you've literally written the papers or the books on many of the topics that they're quite interested in. <laughs> but be before we get into the hardcore nitty gritty, give us a little bit about your background. Like uh, what, what's driving this passion? You're really, really passionate about cybersecurity. It comes across in all your content that you create. So, Yeah, I, I am incredibly passionate about cybersecurity. If, if anyone uh, has interacted with me in any capacity, they know that you know, I just get up for it. It's it's. I'm very, very, very fortunate that um, you know something that I love so much is something that is in such demand, and it, it enables me to uh, provide for my family financially and be able to do what I would consider good for society. Right, helping businesses, helping individuals, helping um, organizations protect themselves, reduce risk, helping personal people protect their own personal finances, and you know, photos and, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, it's really, it's really awesome. You know, I, I, I was a, uh, I, I went and got a degree in computer science originally way back in the day, like my bachelor's degree and went into market as a software okay. developer. Cause that's all I thought you could do with a computer science degree. And then at some point early in my career, I got audited, but from a cybersecurity perspective, I was supporting okay. the Marine Corps and there's a bit of, um, security audit requirements that no one had made uh, apparent to me as a developer. And I got audited. I did horrible because I wasn't putting security in like everybody else. And, I, you know, that was like my first taste of like, oh my gosh, there is actually like something here. Like, let, let me dig in. And then um, because it is unbelievably wide. And like you said, I've been working in the industry for a long time. I have multiple degrees. Like I contribute to the community and there's like so many things that I know very little about um, in the industry. Like that's how much opportunity there is. And I'm a lifelong learner. So for Fantastic. me, the ability for it to be super dynamic and super compl like complicated and constantly evolving, um, it's like an endless well that I can go fill buckets from and be personally satisfied both from a um, you know continuing education perspective and then also from a kind of giving to a community perspective. And I think that's really, really important what you just said to outline here that, you know, even though you have a PhD literally mm -hmm. in the topic and, and you've done a great amount of work in the area, you're still a lifelong learner. I think to be a master of your, of your craft, whether that be in cybersecurity or you're a musician or whatever you may be, if you don't have that attitude of a lifelong learner, it's very hard to achieve that master status, if you will. Yeah. And I, and I feel, especially in cybersecurity, I guess I can speak to that because that is kind of my, my, my area of expertise. You, you know, you need to be humble. You need to appreciate the fact that there's other people out there who are better at, 
any particular thing that you may encounter in the field. And again, because it's changing so rapidly, something that you knew as a fact six months ago, two years ago, may not be as factual or may not be exactly. And just as a perfect example, Manoj, um, you know, people who are experts at, you know, IT infrastructure and network engineering right. or, or database administration, or whatever, like when we migrated from on-prem to cloud, like this big paradigm shift right. in the industry over the last five years, um, you know, those skills aren't one-to-one mapping, right? Like I'm, I'm really good at security, but like, I'm not really good at cloud security because it's a different paradigm. So, you know, like I said, you got to be humble, you got to be real. Um, and appreciate that in order to deliver excellence and be valuable both personally and for an organization, you need to continue to develop, continue to, to seek out uh, new education. So what uh, drove you to write the book about a career in cybersecurity, cybersecurity career master plan? What was the impetus behind it? Yeah. So the the book itself is basically, uh, I wanted to originally call it like the blueprint, but it is a plan. And I have gone up and down the mountain several times. Um, and now I can act like a Sherpa for any individual that wants to know how to go up the mountain. Because it's easy to say, oh, just walk up the path. But what supplies do you bring? What's the weather going to be like? You know, What kind of obstacles or hazards should you avoid? And these are the questions that people don't know to ask. But if you can bring that knowledge to them and get them set up, they have a better chance of not just success, but more of an optimized path, which is more enjoyable. So for me, Simply Cyber, the YouTube channel that I started at the end of 2019, uh, originally, it's evolved over time. But originally, I was getting a lot of questions, DMs on LinkedIn. Hey, Jerry, I see you've got a lot of experience. I want to get into cybersecurity. What do I do? Hey, I'm pivoting from military into private sector. How do I do it? Hey, I'm a red uh, red team player. I want to go blue. What do I do? And I was answering questions, one-on-one DMs and stuff like that. And I don't have the time to do one-on-one mentoring. I just don't. So to me, I was like, oh, let's mentor at scale. So after a year or so of getting questions, making videos, and you know, helping people, I basically had heard what the questions were in the industry. Like I like you get asked the same question over and over and over and over again, right? So you start understanding what's the the mindset. So the book is basically a direct response to all the questions that I got put in an organized way that can help people uh, understand what they need to do. Because a lot of times they don't even know the right questions to ask. Manoj, you probably get this all the time. People will say, hey, I want to work in cybersecurity. What, What do I do? And the next question that I have to ask them is, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a red team, blue team? Do you want to work in GRC? Do you, are you technical? Do you want to be more on the operational side? Like All of these questions are going to influence how I tell you to get into cybersecurity. It's not a basic plan. So the book itself, I'm actually really proud of, it's broken into three parts. And part one is, do you even want to work in this industry? Right? Like That's Because dope. you might not. It's not for everybody. I know it's got like you know, big money and big, big, you know, sizzle um, on the front page of the news and stuff, but it's not for everybody. And then, okay, so if you do want to work there, then go to section two. Section two is like, here's the whole landscape of the industry and how to get the job. And then section three is, okay, you've got the job. Now let's really throttle it up and be excellent at the job and start learning how to give back. So give us the nickel tour here. Uh, You know, if we get a lot of people, uh, like we've hired a lot of military veterans and we get a lot of folks that are are transitioning 
from the military and into civilian life. Or we get people who uh, are in really different careers um, mm -hmm. and, and want to get into the cybersecurity field. I mean, we know of a Disney Imagineer who's now a killer cybersecurity uh, engineer. We know of a nurse who's gotten in and she is an awesome GRC person. And their paths were kind of unique. But if you were going to give us a nickel tour of this trip up the mountain, what what are some big topic guidelines for those people who have no experience and they mm -hmm. are reading job ads that say 20 years of experience, 10 years of experience yeah. in, in technologies that have only existed for three years, by the way, which is very interesting. So uh, <laughs> they look at that and they get discouraged. How do they what what are your thoughts? How do how should they begin? Yeah, so there's really uh, two key things that people need to understand. I at least I would say these are like the secret sauce or the, this is like, you know, like pause the podcast, get a pen, hit play, and let's do this, okay? okay. So really there's a couple things. One, I would, whether you're going to be technical or non-technical, I would encourage people to get a little bit of exposure to networking and operating systems. Now you don't okay. need to understand how like, file swaps, page swaps, and writing to memory and L2 caches. You don't need to know all that. You just need to understand basically how a computer works, right? And the second thing, and this is probably the most important from a technical perspective, is you need to understand how networking works. Like like how a like how a, how your computer, when you go to Google.com or when you pull up this podcast that you're listening to right now, it came from a server somewhere. Right. Well, how did that data get from the server to your phone that you're listening to or in your car? Okay. Basic, basic, basic. You don't need to understand all the protocols, flags, all that stuff, but you just need to understand a little bit below the surface. And once you understand that, because this is how this is how it works. This is how threat actors attack us. This is how data goes out. Yep. This is how you protect an organization. So if you don't understand that, you won't have any like anchor to pin from to be able to then actually absorb actual cyber knowledge. So, so that's okay. the first part as far as an absolute primer goes. Got it. Okay. The second thing, and this is like a little bit further on, but you can do this almost immediately. And I, I say this all the time. Social networking, prof like professional networking is unbelievably valuable. And it may not seem obvious because you're like, well, I just got into this industry. What value do I have to add to a conversation? How can I comment on someone's post if I don't even understand what they're posting about? That's what I'm talking about. There's a lot of Discord servers, including Simply Cyber, which I'm very proud of. So if you, if you really quick, Manoj, you can yeah, put this please. in the show notes, but simplycyber.io slash Discord is the URL. You okay. go to that. There are hundred well there's really thousands of people in there but there's there's always active hundreds and hundreds of people who are they they were where you are right they everybody started from somewhere right and people know the questions that they're going to ask like oh should i do this does anyone know about this is this class good people are sharing knowledge people are being supportive people are being inclusive because you're right that frustration that overwhelming sense of dread that it's just it's just too hard it's just not going to work right. i just can't do it is an absolute fallacy and there are people out there in the community that can help you get what you need in a much faster way and i want to point out and probably this is the biggest takeaway this is the biggest secret and it's it's a sad truth but it's a reality is that i would say 50% of all jobs that people have in cybersecurity yeah. were never really posted or if they were posted 
they were already the, the candidate had already been identified. And that's why sometimes when you apply to these jobs, you, you get ghosted. It's because the job was actually never really open. It had already been hardwired mm-hmm. for someone. Now, how do you become that someone who gets it hardwired? Well, you have a professional network. People know what you're interested in. People know what kind of value you bring because you're just you're establishing who you are. You're establishing that you're a good communicator. You're establishing that you're putting in the work and effort. And when I personally, I'm a CISO, so like I hire you know staff and stuff. Like when I need to hire someone, I need them as soon as possible because I have problems today. So I'm much more likely, like a hundred percent, to ask my network if anyone knows anyone. Sure. Than I am to go to market because I don't have time to go through HR honestly and, and deal with, you know, an open call and all that. I will go there, but that's my final backstop, not my first stop. So it sounds like you're advocating that you have to create your own personal brand and do a little bit of marketing. So, and those are things that a lot of technical people are deeply uncomfortable with. Yeah, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do it in a way that resonates with the individual themselves, right? So you're deeply technical, okay? So maybe you start doing a couple labs, especially if you're trying to get in the industry. Chances are you're doing practical labs in order to get the knowledge to understand. So just take five minutes and document what you did and post it on a blog. Then take a link to the blog and post it on Twitter and say, I'm working on this. Then when people reply and say, oh, that's interesting or whatever you know, tell them, tell them, oh, I'll be working on this next, like slowly start building it. It's, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, standing on top of the podium at the front of the stage, yelling out, I'm working on this, right? You can do it in a way that resonates with you. And that's, that's part of the trick. And like I said, if you join um, a community like Simply Cybers or any Discord server, I'm not just advocating for mine. um, You'll, you'll see the way that other people are sharing knowledge. It's very, like low barrier and, and, you know, imposter syndrome can take a back seat where you feel uncomfortable that you're about to say something stupid because at least in my server, if someone starts blasting someone for asking a question or saying something that is a little bit more junior, then they are going, the, the person who is being toxic will yep. be removed from the server because there's no room for that. We That's all right. started somewhere. That's and, and everyone's at a different place in that journey. Uh, so uh, I, that's fantastic. That is great advice. And I hope the folks listening, uh, you do rewind the podcast and listen to that little section again, uh, because there's some real tidbits there that can make a material difference in your career. <clears throat> so switching a little bit, uh, you were in Vegas, you were at Black Hat, I assume. Yes. What <clears throat> some give us the highlights what what were your observations from Black Hat this year that are relevant to the community? Yeah. So, you know, a couple, I guess a couple interesting things, especially of your business. So this year was interesting that I spent more time in the business hall than I did at the track talks. So okay. I haven't gone to Black Hat DEF CON since 2019 because of, because of the pandemic. Sure. But, uh, you know, typically I'm a, like a, you know, a talk hound. I go, like I have certain speakers that I really enjoy attending with, I you know, uh, this year was much more business focused. I'm I'm basically an executive now at a company, so I have a little bit more responsibility around business relationships, business management. So I had a bunch of work in the business hall. A couple couple interesting things. It definitely seemed that there were way more businesses uh, shooting the moon on their marketing budget, and I have to suspect that it's because um, they haven't really been spending money on marketing, so it's been like kind of loading up. But there were a lot of really interesting. Um, a lot of interesting uh, booths this year. Um, a lot of it. 
I don't know. It was it was it was really cool. We saw Jen Easterly and Sissa there okay. um, giving, you know, talk. She was at DEF CON as well. Um, I really appreciate that there's been this push from the federal government um, post Biden's executive order about threat intelligence sharing and, and zero trust and all this other stuff. But the way that CISA has manifested this is by putting Jen Easterly as the director of CISA. She's got a really chill vibe. Um They've been making an effort to engage public private sector a lot more. And yeah. by making her like typically when you get a fed, like a senior government official, they're dressed not like the the attendees. Right. They're very formal, very starchy. Yeah. The talk they give is usually very bureaucratic and, and like, OK, like this is interesting, but not really adding value. You know, Jen, Jen is approaching it in a much more like I'm a member of this community. Let's work together to better for everyone. And I think that that's really resonating well. I appreciated that. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I really liked um, Black Hat. I mean, Black Hat is is wildly consistent on the way it delivers. I know people, some people compare it to RSA. I think RSA is much more vendor focused and less practitioner and community based. Um, almost like CIOs might be more likely yeah. to go to RSA, whereas. Uh, Black Hat, it's like CISOs and senior practitioners, team leads and stuff like that. Plus, I mean, Manoj, I, I've been in this game for a while. Like, it is such a great opportunity to meet certain people that you've only dealt with remotely. And over the last two years, I really have encountered a lot of people. And I, I noticed a lot of, you know, relationship building and, and yeah. you know, handshakes and like, good to see you. And like, you know, I couldn't walk 10 feet without bumping into somebody. It was it was really it was a really good vibe this year. That's fantastic. Rekindle some relationships. And of course, the knowledge sharing there is tremendous. I mean, it's been a while. We gave a talk there way back in 2017. Um, we, it's just been uh, this pandemic has really it, it messed up a lot of all of our marketing plans and budgets and things. And we're just now getting back to the recovery side of it. It's taken this long, if you will. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned Jen. Mm -hmm. from CISA, I guess, you know, one, one thing that I'd love to ask her, and maybe you have is like from a government policy perspective, do you see anything coming on down the pike or is there any thoughts you have on postures our federal government should be adopting or policy positions that uh, can help thwart what's going on there with the world of state actors and bad actors, if you will, in general, that are state sponsored? Yeah. You know, I, I, so, okay, so like looking at ransomware specifically, since that's such a front and center, um, you know, attack, attack, if you will, cyber attack or, or impact or whatever, um, you know, for, for years, it's been these kind of like private, quote unquote, private sector criminals that have some type of state sponsorship, like allegedly, where they can kind of operate with immunity. Uh, so we as a country haven't been able to really retaliate in any meaningful way. And I do appreciate that um, at least the U.S. government has been kind of moving in two, two, like two parallel directions. One is with policy around hardening systems, making education, making threat intelligence available, uh, allowing for interoperability. So um, tooling can, you know, basically take in like using like taxi or sticks or something like that. Tooling yeah. can take in IOCs and be able to pivot really quickly. And then at the same time, we're, we're beginning to see, we just saw this like last week, um, where 
sanctions are being placed, not on a way that affects the threat actor, but on the financial systems that the threat actors leverage in order to cash out or, you know, get payments and stuff like that. So if you de-incentivize the ability for threat actors to kind of use certain platforms like Tornado, this this Bitcoin cash mixer yeah. I'm thinking of specifically, um, you know, it, it, it kind of reduces the the juice for them to be able to, you know, want to do business. Plus, for better or worse, I don't know if there's some like black ops stuff going on or clandestine missions, but we're seeing major groups like Revol got broken down uh, right before the Ukrainian war thing. We yep. saw Conti, like Conti was the front or Wizard Spider. They were the front runner on like how you do ransomware as a as an enterprise. Like well, they were running a total uh, mastermind criminal organized crime operation there. Yeah, and even today read, they are. They they <laughs> Yeah, yeah, if you look at um uh Krebs on security, he did a really nice five-part series uh covering the Conti leaks, which was basically one of the members of the Conti group uh was from Ukraine. Uh they came out publicly and said they supported Russia in this war and then that individual released a whole trove of documents and you can see that they have like an HR department, over 100 employees, they have benefits, like it's it's bananas what's going on there. <laughs> but but if you hit them in the benefits? pocketbook they have yeah benefits? yeah yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> so if you I'm hit them in the pocket um if you hit them in the pocket uh, i don't think it's like a 401k matching program Minoj, or anything like that i i, I think it's <laughs> i i think it's more about uh you know access and stuff like that and percentages of uh of money but um if you look at if you hit them in the pocketbook, like at the end of the day, if you're going to operate like a business, then bottom line and revenue and all this is the numbers that you measure success with if you're a legitimate business. And if you can kind of impact the ability for the money to work, then you impact the business, right? So I, I do appreciate that I'm seeing the federal government kind of move in these two directions. We we are seeing a little bit of wiggle room, but there's no doubt that cybersecurity or the cyber criminal industry is still winning, you know, for lack of a better term. And I don't know if we'll ever beat them, honestly, because it's a cat and mouse game. They they quick they quickly adapt to what we come up with for defenses. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if we continually make it harder and make ourselves a moving target, it'll be harder for them to do what they do. And you look at, I, I mean, we were just talking about ransomware. Ransomware as a service is a real thing as is access as a service, right? I mean, you can go on the black market and you can buy access into an an enterprise mm-hmm. right, if, if you have the money to go do it. Do you see those models evolving or how do you see that changing? Or do you see insider threat becoming a bigger thing? Um, well, it's, it's interesting you say that. So uh, twofold. One... Um... I'm I'm sorry. You, access for sale, and then what was the first one you just said? Because I had a ransomware about that. as a service. Oh yeah, ransomware as a service. So actually, it's kind of interesting. Ransomware as a service, I think, is getting more and more dominant. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a ransomware as a service that they've made it even easier for people who don't understand what they're doing in order to execute. So so real quick, ransomware as a service. It's like basically the threat actor operates the entire back end, and all you have to do is execute a payload in your environment. They have made it even easier for that whole process to happen now. So I think that that's going to continue to happen. I, but I do think that you're going to get people who have moral compasses that are like all the way in until they realize what they're about to do. And then they're like, I, you know, because you can go like, not only are you doing, you're making a conscious decision to be criminal, 
you're also like taking the risk of like a felony, right? And if you don't know what you're doing, then you have no idea how to cover your tracks to prevent people from finding out what you've done. And to me, like I wouldn't want to step into that um, cesspool. You know what I mean? Because like you're basically hoping that they don't find you. And uh, spoiler alert, digital forensics investigators can find you very, very easily, uh, especially with something as noisy as ransomware. Now, the other thing about purchasing access, this morning, uh, interestingly, I run a daily cyber threat briefing every morning at 8 a.m., And this morning, we actually covered a story that is showing statistically, uh, based on data pulled from the uh, dark web, that sales of compromised access or, you know, like I I basically siphoned up a bunch of access and I'm going to sell it because I'm not going to jump in, which, by the way, is really, really interesting from a criminal ecosystem that now everybody kind of has their specialty and they they barter like access for, for, you know, payloads and stuff. Um, we're actually seeing sales go down. Now, the story attributed that there's an increase in multi-factor authentication usage and the fact that uh, threat organizations that were really leveraging stolen access like Conti have yeah. kind of gone down by the wayside. I'm of the opinion that there that it is that the major threat actors that were taking advantage of um, compromised access uh, have gone down, not multi-factor, because... I feel like in 2022, like, like if you don't have multi-factor authentication, what are you doing right now? Like, how are you? Not- There's a ton of small businesses, and we'll get to that in a second. Oh that goodness. do not have multi-factor. So, I need to rent like Bigfoot and get like one of those 30-foot <laughs> flags off the back that just says MFA for all, and just go up and down the strip. <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised at how many people do not have MFA. Um, but those selling access, you're saying that their demand has gone down demand for their services. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll provide you a link to the story. Like it statistically, uh, you know, statistically backed evidence to support that claim. And this is, and again, for our listeners, this is now these security brokers as a, do you know what the mix there is in terms of access brokers, I should say, where they have actually stolen credentials versus, uh, someone is willingly providing them their credentials in exchange for money. Do we have any kind of indication of what that might be? I I do not know. If I had to guess, though, I would think that it would be like 2080, right? Because, you know, a a criminal can siphon up, you know, like if they if they steal one credential, they're going to steal a bunch of credentials, right? The phishing page is going to collect a lot. If you crack a database, you're going to get a lot. Whereas it's the one individual who's like, here's my VPN creds, you know. Um, so I, I think that would be the case. I mean, obviously people who aren't implementing best practices, it, it's interesting. I think MFA is more rampant. Uh, you're, you're telling me it's not, but I think it's more rampant. I think one thing that is not, uh, rampant that really needs to be, and I think it's the adoption barrier. That's the problem is password vaults. I think password vaults would help in, in like a, your typical end user substantially, because right now, unfortunately, everybody just reuses the same passwords. And when a database breach happens and someone gets a password, these threat actors, they have scripts that just run through, you know, the top 500 websites, Facebook, LinkedIn, Chase.com, sure. and, and tries your username and password, right? So if you're reusing passwords, I get it, it's easy to remember, but it's such a bad practice. It's terrible. Sure. Well, I, and we're, the industry is moving to more passwordless authentication, mm-hmm. right? And it's also the policies that surround MFA that we, even when it's adopted, a lot of times, well, we have MFA. And then uh, their second factor is 
not something that's very secure or you can reset it by uh, who was your first girlfriend or where did you go to school? Uh, things mm -hmm, that are mm -hmm. so easily guessable if I go on someone's Facebook page or get their social data that I can reset their password and I'm not a cybersecurity engineer. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree 100%. MFA is not a silver bullet. It just raises the barrier uh, of compromise. That That's all it is. And I, I will say some of the foolish things I've heard in my day is like being told that they do, like I've done audit and stuff, being told that they are using multiple factor authentication because they have a username and a password. I'm like, you're really missing the boat on this yeah. one. <laughs> well, you know, the insurance business is driving a, a lot of this now in 2022, where a lot of people can't get their policies, or if they want the renewals, they have to implement certain things. Those guys yeah. are wising up slightly. I'm not going to give them a lot of credit because I think they got a lot of way to go. But um, well, there's no standards in the insurance industry. You could get a, a 45 page questionnaire or a three question questionnaire. It's It's really all over the map. It, it it really is. I, I'm hoping that the three-page questionnaire has gone by the wayside. I don't know. Uh, but I think, the uh, you know, these companies, when you look at the insurers, they don't have masters of cybersecurity on their staff, which is what they really need to start looking at how these policies are being issued. But that's a whole mm – -hmm. we could do an entire show about that topic in itself. Yeah, but but I will say to your point, um, for anyone who is, I guess, you know, in industry or looking for certain interesting tidbits, um, I have seen multiple times, multiple, and I've I've been affected by it, where you can't get budget for your information security program for whatever reason, and then the insurance company comes in and they leverage they they upcharge your policy, you know, four x six x. And immediately the CFO wants to know what the, what the heck is going on here. And they say, well, you don't have multi-factor authentication. Well, what's that cost? 40 grand. So okay. now it's a very easy discussion, right? You can either pay another 250 for a policy or you can pay 40 for MFA, which actually helps us and saves you money. So, you know, what you just, the scenario you pointed to has been a bit of a personal gripe in healthcare. And since you've written the book on this, I'd, I'd love to get your feedback. So- mm -hmm. Anecdotally, at least in some of the my experience with the healthcare industry, is they cybersecurity is very much a cost center. When it comes to investing, they'd rather buy an MRI machine, which makes a lot of sense because that's what they do, mm -hmm. or or a new X-ray machine or whatever other piece of technology they need to better healthcare. But there's been it seems like there's been a degree of reluctance in spending on what really truly needs to be spent uh, mm -hmm. for cyber. And w what are your, you heck, you wrote it. Uh, you wrote it. I, I think you had a paper or your dissertation, flashlight in a dark room theory, right? You know, what What was did you find? Yeah. Well, so twofold. My, my dissertation research, which was like an 18-month project book I had to write in order to complete my PhD program, it looked at small, meaning 10 physicians or less on staff, healthcare practices in the state of South Carolina to understand why they were terrible at information security. Because if you look at the numbers, small, small medium-sized businesses are traditionally not good at security um, and can suffer breaches and stuff like that. And they, they typically like to hide. Uh, <laughs> they typically like to you know put their head in the, in, the, in, the, in the ground and hide. So 
Um, but what you're talking about with this big spend and seeing IT as a cost center, there's, there's two different things. And I think it's based on the size of the org. So my findings and my research actually discovered that many of these organizations, just like many small businesses, outsource their IT operations to an MSP, right? They've got like you know, a, a one person shop who's doing it if they're really small, or they've got like a local, um, you know, vendor who, who su- supports them and probably 30 other practices in the region. Um, and, you know, you got a, a team of like three, four, five people. The, the key problem, and this is why I was called flashlight in a dark room, that's kind of the grounded theory observation that I made, is that these individuals who are running the business, they are clinical people. They right. are not IT people. They're certainly not InfoSec people. And when they sign up for IT services, they assume that cybersecurity is part of that service offering. And when you talk to the MSP, they say, no, we're executing on the contract. The contract says network uptime, availability, uh, you know, five nines, right? The classic right. IT service agreement. We like, yeah, we'll do some cybersecurity stuff, but it's not like we're delivering cybersecurity. If there's an incident, like, you know, that's not on us to do SecOps work or anything like that. So, the flashlight in a dark room is is like basically these m- clinical practices walk into a dark room and they turn on the flashlight and all they see is the risk that the flashlight illuminates. There's all sorts of creepy crawlies all right. over the place, but they're just looking at that and they're saying, protect that. And unfortunately, for better or worse, HIPAA is typically what gets illuminated by the flashlight and they yep. think, oh, privacy, patient data, that's where I need to focus. And in reality, like you're taking credit cards, you are allowing BYOD, like you're using cloud-based systems for your um, for your electronic health record, and you don't have federated authentication. So when people quit, they continue to have access to all this sure. data. Like there's a million things going on that's wrong, and it's because it's in the dark. Um, so so that was my findings with that. If you want to comment on that, Manoj, we could talk about that, oh, or I can yeah, tell you about I'll the bigger you. problem. Uh, we. Well, it's been in the papers. Uh, several years ago, there was a urology practice. Uh, it was a small, I don't know, I think it was like 10, 15 physician practice, I, I want to say. Uh, we can Google it and look it up. But they uh, they didn't even know that their records had been compromised. And, and they, they found out, I think, through the FBI who came knocking on their door and say, hey, by the way, you know, your records are out there on the web. and, and <laughs> Not good. It, not good. Well, as it turned out, you know, uh, it's really hard to shut down or f- or really materially affect a major medical system for a host obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But if you're a small practice like that, it's very easy to make an example of you. And, yeah. and that's exactly what the federal government did. And they actually ended up shutting down their practice because they couldn't financially afford to stay in business anymore with, yeah. Well, it's surprising. I mean, yeah, it's kind of funny that 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 was the reason. I do find that HIPAA fines are typically adjusted to be painful for the organization's revenue, but not be you know um, formulaic where it's like this amount of records, it's this price. Whether you're a five billion dollar industry, I mean, a five billion dollar business right. or a two million dollar business, but yeah, it, it is it is the case. Um, you know, and we've seen ransomware operators shut down small businesses because they literally can't afford. They pay the ransom and then they they don't have any schedules, so they don't know who's coming in or who's going out. They can't bill, um, and and basically they just go out of business because they can't sustain not having revenue for seven days, eight days. That you're exactly right. So what should that small business be doing? What what 
what are the ABCs to people who are listening? And we do get a lot of small business folks that, that listen to this show. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple things. Um, you know, you might not have the the finances to hire like a cybersecurity professional. And I wouldn't expect a small business to have an on-staff cyber professional, but like outsource one just for an audit to come in and, you know, it's going to be tough to vet them if they're qualified or not, but have an audit and come in and just kind of do what we we'd call in the industry a risk assessment, right? Like, what are my risks? What should I be doing, et cetera? So that's, that's like A, but if you are really strapped for cash and you just want to do what you need to do, talk to your managed service provider, your IT people, tell them you want multi-factor authentication, tell them that you want to understand how to use a password vault. You can buy them pretty cheap now. They're like cloud-based services for sure. your whole business. And you could share... You can have your own account, but then share like, you know, if you have shared passwords for like file servers or something like that. Um, another thing that I see um, that people kind of make mistakes on, and it's it's understood, but you really, really shouldn't be doing this, is having like an Excel file with all the usernames and passwords for all the different systems and vendors and stuff like that. That is like a radioactive asset. You really don't want that. That's why you should have a password vault. But if you can't have a password vault, then you know, change the permissions on that file. Don't have that file. Save it on a don't local machine. Don't name it critical passwords. <laughs> yeah, don't name it critical passwords. I mean, it's just a million different things, but I, I see that quite a bit um, often because at the end of the day, you're trying to deliver patient care. Um, you're trying to move as quickly as possible. You're trying to be frictionless. And yeah, like basically the password is slowing you down because you have to type it in. So by reducing the friction, by writing it down, yeah, you reduce the friction, but you make it so much easier for threat actors to get in there. And and nowadays, I guess the final thing I'll, I'll tell you is like, whatever your email gateway is, like if you're using Office 365, find out or confirm or whatever that you have some type of email filtering going on. Like O365 is good. Like some of the bigger ones like Proofpoint and, and Mimecast and stuff like that are pretty good. I don't know the availability for small business, but if you're just using, if your MSP is just using a out of the box vanilla mail server, then that's a problem because phishing emails account for like 80% sure. of like the initial attack vector because they can get into your organization and compromise your, your billing coordinator, right? Why would your billing coordinator know one thing or another about phishing attacks? So educate your staff as well. Well, you know, and there's some, um, there's a free tool that I'll mention. Uh, what was, there was a company called InfoSight, and I'm going to say was because they got bought up by Dato recently. But I think you can still go on their website and download and run an assessment of your Microsoft 365 environment. And it'll give you a lot of gaps and findings. Oh, yeah. Uh, and co compares it to the CISA standards. So, if you're a small business, it's a great way to get a simple uh, check. I won't say it's a pretty thorough thing. And then go back to your MSP and have them reconfigure it, or you're going to have to outsource a security professional to do it. But those things need to get done. There's a lot of free sources, resources out there, too, for people. If uh, Yeah, I'm actually dropping one in chat for you right now from a company that I am friends with that is actually in the same market as me called Ceteria, and okay. they actually have an O365 PowerShell script. You just run it, and it does a full audit on your O365 instance. That's fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we'll they're, they're we'll actually put there. this in the show notes as well, and and put Good. some links so that people can come back and refer to it, um, and get at these tools. Cool. Well, because those configurations, there's, you know, there's a myth, and we're sorry for changing topics so rapidly. Just it's just the time frame that we have here. Uh, but you talked about securing the cloud, which is mm-hmm. its own beast. Mm-hmm. But people assume that I'm using Microsoft 365, so Microsoft's already done all my cybersecurity, and and we've talked about this a lot on the show. Or we're we're using Amazon, so we're secure. <laughs> Oh my God, I, you're yeah. like, I, I kid you not. Yeah, I, I'll let you comment to what you would say to those people because I've kind of beat on them quite a bit. But please, yeah. All right. So there's two things. Like, if you're listening to this, the TLDR is like the cloud makes it so everything's accessible no matter where you are. But that means that it's accessible to the bad guys no matter where they are. Right? right. Like, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's not that far a leap. It's a simple step to understand. So platforms like AWS and in, in, in Azure and Google Cloud, they're great. And yes, they handle, if you think of it as like a, like a, like a, a cake, right? They handle the lower levels of the cake and you're responsible only for the top tier, right? You're responsible for just putting the frosting on top, which is fine. The problem you have to understand is you are responsible for securing that top layer. You don't just get to like, right off securing. Yeah, you don't have to patch the underlying operating system, but you are responsible. Now, what am I responsible for? Give me the juice, Jerry. Yeah. Here's the deal. You're resp- this is where like the term zero trust comes from essentially, but there's two things you got to be mindful of. One is the identity, right? Yep. People are logging in to these services. People are writing API scripts that, you know, interface with these services on behalf. So if you're doing any of that, it's this is why it's so critical for multiple multi-factor authentication, right? You need to make sure that whoever's logging into that account is in fact who they say they are, completely validated. Now, that's wicked important. Now, I will point out that some of the services have gotten a bit better as far as, you know, if you log in from the same machine every day, it won't challenge you for that second factor. If you're logging in from, you know, like a geolocation, like I always log in from the East Coast. So if I log in from Taiwan, you know, multi-factor, but otherwise no multi-factor, right? So there's some um, adjustments for reducing friction, but not enabling multi-factor because the CEO says it's inconvenient is not acceptable. And there's 300 stories that you can Google in like five seconds that will show why that's a bad example and why you can tell the CEO we're not going to do that. Okay. So that's the identity. Also, by the way, uh, some of these platforms do have the ability to look at user logins and stuff like that. So you are responsible for audit review. Again, if you're a clinical, like to use your healthcare example still, like if you are the dermatologist, yeah, it sucks because you're not going to be the one who wants to look at that or fully understand that. But it's incumbent upon you since it's your data, your business to make sure someone's doing it. I don't care if it's the MSP or if it's your nephew and you hire him as an intern, whatever it is, someone's got to look at that. The other thing, and Manoj, I, 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 on my podcast, I have like a soundboard over here that I run and I have one that says spicy. I won't play it on your stream, but (laughs) when databases, file servers, et cetera, are misconfigured and the keyword that you would want to Google listening to this, pause it and Google it is S3 bucket leak. S3 buckets are basically databases that Amazon provides through AWS and 
you know, there's, there's different ones all over the place, but S3 bucket is an easy one to Google and they're inherently secure. They hold data very, very nicely, but if they're misconfigured, meaning that they're open to anyone on the internet, which happens all the time, then anyone on the internet can get it. And a lot of times, you know, like this urologist example you mentioned earlier, yeah. there's a, there's not an unrealistic chance that their data was stored in an insecure S3 bucket. It doesn't mean it was set up wrong. It doesn't mean that it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. That's and this is the this is the conflict between IT and infosec. It was doing what it was supposed to do. It was delivering the files. People right. could access it. People could edit it, whatever. But the problem is it was also accessible by threat actors and and that's the problem. So in short, User access needs to be controlled and configuration needs to be done deliberately and not haphazardly. Well, those are basics. And I would uh-huh. be surprised at how many big businesses get that wrong, right? Oh, so yeah. small businesses is a, is a problem. Uh, they just don't have the resources. Uh, but we've known a major production house whose movies you have seen, I guarantee you, that was taking the final cut, no pun intended there of their digital edits of a major motion picture. And it was, if you knew where to look, it was publicly available. Yeah. It's no good. And and uh, uh, something you just said, Manoj, that's so true. And I feel like people, people like want it to be like some elite, you know, zero day hack, something that's like, you know, made for Hollywood. Basic fundamentals is what you need to do. Basic fundamentals get you 80% secure. Like that's, the basics. That's why it's the basics because they work and everybody should be doing them. Yeah. If you did the CISA top five well. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm not even going to the, I think they're at 18 now, right? They That's are. They good. collapsed. They too. collapsed yeah. to 18. But if we just go top five <laughs> and yeah. you did those well, I think you'd be a, you'd be a tough target. It, it, it'd be, it might be better go shop elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're yeah, a ransomware, if you're a ransomware attacker. So, and I guess, you know, that's, that's the other thing we often, I get a lot of executives that come back and they say it, I bought this technology and that solves the problem. Now we've shored up our cybersecurity program, but I think there's a fundamental disconnect there in that they're not understanding that the risk profile is a result of business operations, which isn't going to be solved by one technology. Yeah. Unfortunately, I see this all the time as well. Unfortunately, executives and and the business to call them, you know, to group them together, the business, they will stroke a check for an appliance in a heartbeat, right? Because they think that they can just cut a check and solve a problem and move on to what is actually interesting to them. And that's not the case. And I'll tell you why. One, when you buy an appliance or whatever, you need to integrate it into your environment appropriately and more often than not, and this is usually the major fail, you need to put a resource on it to either maintain it or to actually operate it. And it ends up becoming a shared responsibility of like, oh, I'm already doing like 110% of work because you bought some appliance three months ago that you got me working. Now you're going to say, oh, Jerry will handle it. It's It's an infosec tool. Jerry will handle it. And I don't have the cycles. So what ends up happening is it gets spun up. Usually a professional services company will help you deploy it. And then it kind of works for like a week and then it slowly starts degrading in value. And then it's just there and you're not really realizing the value of it. Um, 
and that's assuming that they didn't buy an appliance that was duplicative of some service you already oh. had. Oh, you know, well, that happens all the time too. Well, I, I think, well, you've, you've professionally worked as a CISO, you know, how many companies actually go through a, a strategic mapping of their assets of what they're trying to protect and then map the gaps that they have with their current infrastructure in that protection. Oh. And then, and then only do you make a technology decision. So there's a there's a reason why cybersecurity vendors spend more on marketing than they do on product. <laughs> like at the end of the day, thank you for saying it. That's uh, I I didn't want to piss anybody off, but that's an absolutely correct statement. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, it's all about you know hitting the links and talking about what how we are different um, and why you need us. But it's never like un unfortunately, Manoj, like. It, it is work. It is grind in order to do the assessment, to do the audit, to figure it out is. really where are your gaps and what kind of solutions fill those gaps and how do they map over your existing tech stack. It's work. And you know what's easy? Cutting a check. <laughs> That's really easy. Yeah, so, well, okay. So then let me, this is my last question. Um, how, when you cut that check, you have forgotten about your entire employee base, which is your the biggest cybersecurity asset that you actually have, mm -hmm. how do you bring them into the fold? Because you need to. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't... There's a couple technical controls, and those are easy for people to wrap their head around because it's almost Boolean, like on or off. Uh, yeah. But to me, security awareness is easily one of the most valuable risk-reducing controls you can implement. And by the way, it's typically low budget. Yeah, you can go shop for like one of these big vendors that sells complete solutions and stuff. But a lot of times in my experience and in my opinion, I'm very passionate about this particular topic, those corporate solutions are so tone deaf because the, the staff, you know, like, like, okay, I'm Carl and I'm into research and development, right? Like, when I have to do this annual training that doesn't feel like it's applicable to my my business, right? Maybe it's like my industry or something like that. It just feels like, ugh, like click, 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 click. And you're not really doing anything. The, the point of security awareness is to modify behavior. That's all yeah. it is, right? And it, I know that might sound like, you know, Manchurian candidate-like, <laughs> but it's not. It's literally, in my, in my experience, Manoj, people want to do the right thing. Yes, Most they do. people want to do the right thing. And in the absence of knowledge, they will make their own decision on what the right thing is. So you need to engage them. I am a huge advocate of not just the value of uh, awareness training being risk reduction, but the way to do it. So to me, I like to touch... Well, <laughs> this sounds funny, but I like to touch my end users like once a week, once every two weeks, send out quick hits, like very, very specific things. Like, hey, we're not going to do a 60-minute yep. talk about all these things. What I am going to tell you right now is that, um, like, okay, so a, a perfect example happened a couple weeks ago. There was some Android malware that got installed by like 10 million people, and it would sign you up for like a $35 a month premium service. A lot of people might not notice a $35 charge on their account, or they might think it was like their kid or their yeah. spouse or something like that. Right. So, but this, this threat actor was making like $30 million a year, uh, a month. Oh my off God. Of, that's like, a great gig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but okay. But okay. So what do we do with that knowledge? Well, here's a tightly packaged thing. Hey, end users, if you're, if you or someone you love 
is using Android and they installed one of these three apps, there's a high probability they may have been compromised. Have them check their bank statements, have them uninstall the app, and just be aware that this is how malware can get on your Android phone. Now you shape it a little bit for end user consumption, but the, at the end of the day, I've given you something actionable and I've given you something personal. And when I come at you later on about not being allowed to install a certain app on your mobile device, you're way more invested in wanting to go with me on that journey than me just sending you a blanket. This is policy. Now do what I say and piss off. Right. So to me, security awareness has to be short and concise. It needs to be constant. Like consistency is key. And in this one, a lot of people miss on this one, but it needs to be personally relatable. I never tell my end users, Hey, We need to do this for the business. We need to protect the business because in 2022, yeah, you can have some loyalty, but this isn't, you know, General Motors 1950 where I'm going to get a gold watch in 40 years. Like I'm, I'm a mercenary just like everyone else. I want to get paid. So if I make it personally relatable, hey, you need to put MFA on your email because it's trivial to reset your bank account. If I get into your email, I don't want you to get robbed. Tell your friends and family over Thanksgiving break. People were like, yes. And then when you roll out MFA in Q1 of next year, they're already got the app on their phone. You're literally, they're already, they're already indoctrinated into best practices. And that's the key. That, that I'm brilliant answer. And I can't agree with it more. That's, that's fantastic. So in the last couple seconds here, Jerry, give us uh, pl- whatever you'd like to plug. Uh, it's your platform, whatever you'd like to highlight here. Well, thanks, Manoj. Yeah, Yeah. I've really enjoyed my time on the podcast and and talking with you today. And I appreciate if you got to this part of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, I definitely enjoyed this experience. If you are interested in getting information on a daily basis, every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, I go live. You can go to simplycyber.io slash streams to see the daily cyber threat briefing. And like I said, I cover the top cybersecurity news stories of the day every morning. And the important thing is, after each story, I stop and then I tell you how you can operationalize it professionally. Or if you're looking to get a job in the industry, you will be asked, how do you stay current? I guarantee you that's a question. You can say the daily cyber threat briefing. And if they ask you any scenario-based question, chances are we've talked about something on the channel. And I've given you my analysis on what it means and everything like that. So, And to get back to the security awareness thing too... Like I will regularly, if there's a certain story, I'll say, hey, this one is perfect for end users. Here's how I would shape the message. All right, let's go on to the next story. So it's really actionable intel. And there's about 200 people every morning in chat, sharing ideas, being inclusive, getting back to that networking piece that we talked about in the beginning. So simplycyber.io slash streams. I hope you can join us. Fantastic. Uh, We'll also include that in the show notes as well, Jerry. We appreciate your time. You've been fantastic. And, uh, you know, whenever you have your next project, don't be a stranger around here. Drop in, let us know. We'd love to even do like a 10-minute short with you and keep people abreast of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, stay in contact, man. I I definitely had a great time. Looking forward to the next one. As, As did we. Thank you so much.